Welcome to the Love is Viral show. I'm your host, Jeanette Schneider, the founder and CEO of Live Media and the creator of the Live Pocket Coach on the Apple App Store. Our premise at Live is simple. A healthier you today leads to a healthier world tomorrow. Our guests include neuroscientists, therapists, professors, coaches, authors, yogis, speakers, entrepreneurs, and those who believe that a bigger, better life can be found at the intersection of mindfulness and science. Join me as we nerd out with a little bit of soul. The Love is Viral show is a live media production. Dr. Sarah Mackay believes it's important for therapists and coaches to know how to use neuroscience wisely in their practice based on up-to-date, contemporary ideas, allowing for us all to move forward by releasing old-fashioned and outdated ways that are not helping people to thrive. Sarah is a neuroscientist and science communicator who specializes in translating brain science research into simple, actionable strategies for peak performance, creativity, health, and well-being. In this episode, we discuss the importance of taking a step back and become the observer when it comes to our emotions, the reptilian brain, fact or fiction, what fight or flight really means, behaving and doing versus thinking and feeling, and how we can use the right tools and strategies to bring a pragmatic approach to the world of mindfulness. Sarah grew up in New Zealand where she completed her bachelor's at Otago University, then headed to Oxford University for her PhD. She sums up her thesis with the words, nature, nurture, or neuroplasticity. After five years of postdoctoral research, Sarah hung up her lab coat to pursue a career in science communications. Sarah is the author of The Woman's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness, and the director of the Neuroscience Academy, which offers professional development program in applied neuroscience and brain health. In 2019, Sarah hosted an episode of ABC Catalyst exploring brain health, biohacking, and longevity. Sarah lives on Sydney's northern beaches with her Irish husband, and together they are raising two surfer dudes. Let's dig in. Hi, this is Jeanette Schneider. Welcome back to the Love is Viral show. I am here today with Dr. Sarah Mackay. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, as I mentioned before we got started, I am fascinated um, by all things brain. I think I spent a lot of time and energy trying to understand self-development from a very kind of like the, the traditional therapeutic way of looking at pulling out old stories and healing through pain. And as I went through my own journey, I started to learn um, how powerful our brain is in all of this. And um, you specifically talk about why it's important for therapists and coaches to understand how to use neuroscience wisely. And first, my first question is, why do you think that's important? Like from your perspective, as you see coaches and therapists kind of, I don't know if you would even call it shifting to this focus of neuroscience. Like what's your take on it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, um, as a neuroscientist, I tend to see the brain at the center of all of our human behavior, the, what, everything we think and feel and do, the decisions we make, how we sense and perceive the world, that really is all coming about because of the brain. Um, that's kind of what it evolved What it evolved to do, was to think, feel, move us through the world, um, evolved so we could interact with other people. Um, it really is why we remember, how we learn. It's really at the centre and the core of everything. I guess what I've seen in recent years, and I've um, been a, a 
a student, um, a scientist and an educator within neuroscience now for coming up to 27 years. So it's, you know, been, been my passion and my kind of thing for most of my life, certainly all my career and my adult life. Um, I've seen a real growing interest in, in neuroscience and certainly that's a huge shift from <clears throat> when I first started studying, you know, back when I was about 20, 18, 19, 20, and I said I was studying at university neuroscience. People didn't know even what I was saying when I said that word. Mm -hmm. um, now, I grew up in New Zealand, um, which is a, one of the best countries in the world to grow up in. Very fortunate that that was where I grew up and I did my um, university studies at Oxford University. And I don't think it was my Kiwi accent because I knew other people who were also studying this new discipline of neuroscience, which brought together the brain components of psychology and pharmacology and anatomy and physiology and kind of brought it, brought it all together. Um, so, so, you know, we've gone from 20 years ago, people not knowing what I was saying when I said that word, to sort of the last five, six, seven years um, when I think there's been a global rise in interest in um, not just coaching and therapy, but really um, trying to understand the human mind and who we are and what we do. Um, and one of the best ways that we can do that is through psychology and is through neuroscience. They're really the windows into human mind and behaviour. Mm -hmm. I guess the problem lies in the fact that this, that neuroscience is this incredibly um, broad, rich, deep, complex discipline. And scientists are really still like, you know, we could say we're in the foothills of our exploration of the landscape of the brain. We've barely scratched the surface of the cortex. You know, there's so much more that we don't know it's such an exciting discipline at the same time that I see what happens is people kind of grasp onto a few little like kind of threads they can understand. And there's often a lot of gaps in our scientific knowledge still. And, and what people tend to do when there's gaps and when there's stories is they scrabble to fill it up with, well, when there's a gap, they scrabble to fill it up with a story, which mm -hmm. may or may not be accurate. So really for me, what's, what drives me is, you know, there's this there's this real thirst for people wanting to understand neuroscience and understand humans. Mm -hmm. um, where the neuroscience is in the two are not necessarily meeting always. Um, and I just want to make sure that when we are talking about the brain, when we are trying to use neuroscience, that people are doing it with accurately based on contemporary up-to-date ideas not ideas from 50 years ago mm. um and that, that so that's where that idea about using it wisely comes from um having trying to to give people a, a basic foundation and knowledge so that they can build on that and build on that accurately because what we do know is incredibly useful and powerful but there's a lot of rubbish out there as well um and I want to make sure that that is that, that we are using this this tool um, in the right way. Um, I often talk about the seductive allure of the neuroscience explanation, and there has been academic research into this idea that if neuroscience information or explanations are included alongside any discussion of human behaviour, people are far more likely to believe that what has been said is correct and accurate, even if it's a complete load of rubbish. Um, so neuroscience has this real seductive allure. Um, so if we've got this kind of way of seducing people with words, we better make sure that we are um, doing it correctly. Yeah, I love that. And I think one of the things like immediately when you said that, 
Because from my perspective, people are searching, right? They're searching for ways to help themselves and to understand themselves better. And that's why there are so many coaches and therapists who are available to them. Um, and I think in my, in my understanding, it seems easier to accept if there's a, if there's science behind it, right? It's easier for us to be um, willing to change. Like if you said, we're going to have to go through this deep psychological work where you're going to spend probably the next six months going through every problem that you've ever had. And it's going to be this whole process. And it, it sounds terrible. And a lot of people are like, I would like to go hide under the covers. I'm good. I'll figure it out later. And they kind of avoid. But if you tell someone, oh, well, here are some things. And this explains why your brain does this. And it almost kind of gives them the ability to kind of take a step back and yeah, yeah, see yeah. their life from like a detached perspective. Like, yeah. oh, well, my brain is like, it's, a, it's an organ and I can do this and I can do that as opposed to kind of going through the, um, I, I think it detaches from the emotional like trauma idea of yeah, yeah. going through all that work. So I totally, yeah, yeah. I, totally yeah, and I, I, I think that there's probably a lot to that. Um, and I suppose, you know, if we were to talk about, and I'm not a therapist, I'm a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I'm a scientist. We were to, to talk about therapy as a, a lot of it is to try and um, step back a little bit from what is going on and be quite dispassionate about it in a way. And I suppose science allows us, to do that, it gives us kind of a framework or a biological structure in which to consider what's going on. Um, and, you know, it's not easy to change. <laughs> Therapy's not easy. Coaching's not easy. Um, and, you know, the, there are scientific reasons as to why it is hard as adults to change. There's, there's, we understand the neuroscience behind that. If um, change was easy we wouldn't need coaches and therapists would we it would be a whole industry not in not an existence if we could just simply change our mind um and so I think it gives people um an ins a real insight and understanding into some of the processes and and it gives you kind of a why you know why do we recommend this why do we recommend that I guess I still um I do have quite a lot of concerns that a lot of the information out there is inaccurate. Um, and there's a few kind of very, very loud voices talking about what they would term neuroscience. You're not necessarily even trained in neuroscience. So for me, a big part of what I try and do is provide people with um, and, and a real up-to-date understanding of, of, of where we're at and what we can understand about the brain and also what we can't. And it's okay I don't know whether many people are getting a better understanding of the scientific process in 2020 with everything that's going on in the global pandemic, but, but science isn't a repository of facts. It's a process in which we're seeking to try and understand um, in, a, in a deeper and deeper way um, a particular process, um, you know, trying to understand nature, trying to understand what's going on, and we, we learn more as we go along, and really that's kind of where neuroscience is too, probably similar sort of stages to where we were at and trying to understand what's going on with this global pandemic. I think for what well, we've got to figure out yet. Well, I think, I think that's the fascinating part of it, right? There's always that question or the curiosity out there. And I love the fact that like, we know about our, like, there's so much more to learn, right? There's so much more that we're probably capable of, and we have no idea yet. Um, I'm curious though, because we, I've had several people on the show and we, we talk about, and I've heard differing perspectives, so I'd love to hear yours, how our brain is this, it's millions of years old and it's archaic. And we, we talk about, you know, the flight or, fight or flight and, and all of these things, but um, we're, we evolve as humans. So I'm 
I'm curious, when people are kind of talking about this reptilian brain, would you agree with that? Or do you believe in the evolution of, because that's something that I I see out there and I'm so curious what you think. Yeah. Well, I believe in evolution because that's scientific fact. Um, It's not really a matter of belief. It's a matter of just being a scientist and accepting the data. Um, The reptilian brain is one of these ideas that's widely discussed, but never, ever, ever by neuroscientists. I had never, I, I, I trained um, at the Otago University in New Zealand and I spent four years at Oxford University in the UK and then spent five years in the neuroscience research labs here in Sydney, Australia. Um, I had never heard of the reptilian brain um, until I kind of started working, um, teaching people neuroscience, started talking to coaches and therapists. So I think it's pretty safe to say neuroscientists don't talk about this <laughs> brain idea. It's not a thing. Right. Right. Um, and I've written I've written about it recently, so people can can go and, and check it out on my blog. But it's 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 a I think it's a it's an analogy or a story or a metaphor, whatever kind of language you want to use, that has been thrown around so widely. People have started to almost accept that it's it is a, it is actually a part of the brain that has been described and studied and is shared between ourselves and lizards. The, the problem with this is that, one, it's discredited by neuroscientists, and two, it's discredited by evolutionary biologists. So it was first proposed back in the 60s by one particular chap who was working as a neuroscientist, but I think he kind of used it more as a kind of a, a, a story to tell about how he believed that the human brain evolved. Now, that was the 1960s. We now understand that the human brain didn't evolve quite the way what he thought. From an evolutionary perspective, it's been discredited because humans didn't evolve from lizards. In fact, humans and lizards evolved in completely separate kind of um, paths of the evolutionary tree. We do have a common ancestor, but um, and, and, and I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but the evolutionary biologists also don't support this idea. Now, one of the problems with this, that it, from a neuroscience perspective, is it gets used to describe um, a whole range of different brain structures um, I have heard it and I've sort of looked at, at how it's been used, spoken about and used in diagrams, and it's been used to describe about five or six different regions of the brain, including the spinal cord, the brainstem, the cerebellum, the hypothalamus, the amygdala, um, and I've seen it labelling some sort of structure in the middle of the brain, which I think is possibly the thalamus or the striatum. It's really kind of hard to know. Um, and it often gets used in partnership with, as you said, this idea of fight or flight, Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose it appeals because it seems to give this credence to a lot of these original ideas from Freud about the id and the ego and, and the superego. And it's also used to describe human behaviour as being entirely irrational and, and driven by emotions mm-hmm. or driven by fight or flight. And so we all have this kind of fearful lizard brain lurking inside us that kind of drives all of our responses. Um, and that's just not at all about what we understand about how the brain works. Now, this idea about fight or flight is a really interesting one um, because I suppose it's used to describe one of these emotions that we experience, fear. Um, Now, there are parts of the brain that are involved with recognition of threat and the deployment of um, physiological responses in our body to enable us to kind of rise to the challenge. 
um, in one of those regions. So we have various, you know, senses, whether it be a thought process or perhaps something that we see out there. There's this kind of romanticised idea about ancient humans being chased by saber-toothed tigers. I'm not entirely sure how often that ever happened. But um, what we understand is that we perceive or we see something that's scary out there or we think something's threatening or perhaps there is some challenge or perhaps even an opportunity. Um, various regions in our brain process that. One of the regions is known as the amygdala, is involved with kind of um, deciding if something matters or not or is important. If it appears to be important, if it matters, because we have a previous experience of having learned that it matters, then various signals get sent out to another part of the brain. One of those parts of the brain is the hypothalamus um, that then sends signals out to the rest of the nervous system in the body saying, hey, get ready to meet the challenge. Now, if you are a lion and an antelope, interestingly, the exact same physiological responses are going to be in play, regardless of whether you are the lion chasing down the antelope, or whether you are the antelope chasing the lion. What's really interesting is we tend to use this fight or flight description of these brain responses and physiological responses only to the antelope and not to the lion. Actually, the exact same physiology is in play. Interestingly, the exact same physiology is in play when an athlete's perhaps getting ready to run a 100-metre race or a 400-metre race, you know, they're kind of the anticipation, they're getting ready to rise to the challenge. Because of all of this consistent use of this reptilian brain and this fight or flight, there's this tendency, I think, for many people outside of neuroscience to think that if we have a response that is primarily fear-driven, we are running away from something and not understanding that, that our body and our brain are simply rising to a challenge, mm. What is important here is our experiences, our memories, our expectations, how we are assessing the situation, what we will then label that particular um, deployment or behaviour as. What we understand about how emotions are made from contemporary neuroscience is it's almost as if we can think about it as various ingredients being picked up by the brain, the brain's recognising physiological sensations in our body, considering the context and situation we're in, the people we're with, where we are. Hey, have I been somewhere like this before? Do I have a memory? Do I have an experience? Do I have an expectation about this? And as humans, what is the language that I am labelling this particular sensation or, or, or emotion with? Now, I think that we've done a disservice to humans by talking constantly about fight or flight mm -hmm. as if an increased heart rate, perhaps um, the physiological response that we might feel in anticipation rising to a challenge or a threat or an opportunity is fight or flight, as if the only time we ever feel that physiological response, it's negative and it's fear-driven. And that's come out of this, this idea of the reptilian brain fight or flight um, all being this language that kind of commonly is used. We're not teaching people to consider, hey, I have these feelings in my body. What's the situation? What are my previous experiences? We're not, we're not teaching them about how the brain processes mm -hmm. sensations, situations, context, memories, and the language that we're using. If we're only giving people the reptilian brain and fight or flight as a language to use, Aren't we doing them a massive disservice? Perhaps we could say that that athlete is 
is anticipating the glory of winning the race and the the excitement and the thrill and the noise of the crowd. They're getting pumped and they're getting ready to go. There's so many languages that we can use and words we can use to describe that situation. It's not fight or flight. We're doing a real disservice to the people we work with when we constantly condense all human behaviour down into these couple of kind of negatives. Um, You know, um, we haven't inherited every emotion that we experience from our animal ancestors. Even fear and anxiety, these are emotions, they're not biologically wired. They didn't erupt from our brains as some kind of prepackaged kind of um, emotion that was wired in there with kind of fear, fear, under, fear underlying it all. Now, that's not to say these aren't emotions that can be experienced and can be learned, but we, we need to stop using just falling back to this default language mm-hmm. one because it's inaccurate and two because it, do, it it removes any agency anyone has from experiencing the entire landscape and nuance of emotions that we can experience in the future and it's not teaching them to be smarter and wiser we're not using neuroscience wisely to be smarter and wiser and, and, and again, taking a step back from what is what is going on. So um, I'm kind of ranting here a little bit, but um, I, I think that this lizard brain, reptilian brain language, which um, isn't used by neuroscientists anyway, has done um, a lot of damage and um, is, is not, is, is kind of removing agency from people um, and it's not teaching them how emotions are created, how we can have these massively positive and in these these this kind of glorious landscape of emotions based on what the brain does not only is live like a life coach in your pocket but we have coaches in 3d as well with our most recent upgrade you can sign up for one-on-one coaching with a person on the phone who will hold you down hold you accountable and offer you perspective as you build your big bad beautiful new life Apple users can sign up for our premium plus plan through the app or check out our next level and mastery options at loveisviral.com forward slash coaching. Android users, we haven't forgotten about you. Live coaching is available to you as well. Just reach out to us at dearlive at loveisviral.com and we'll fill you in on all the ways Live can create with you. Live Pocket Coach, welcome to your life. Yeah. What I love about all of that is, and this is one of the issues I've taken with psychology and therapy in the past is that I'm fascinated by all of it, but I also feel like sometimes we create these buckets or explanations to almost dumb down an experience so people can put a label on it. Right. So it is taking away from the overall human experience. You have so many people saying this person's a narcissist and this person's an enabler because we've given people labels, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those people are those things. Um, one of the things I'm curious about from your perspective, when you talk about taking a step back, um, I've been very aware of this idea of kind of becoming the observer of emotions as opposed to being in the emotion. And I'm curious from your perspective, is that kind of what you're talking about? Like taking a step back mm-hmm. and, and realizing like I'm an entire system at play, right? And it's not necessarily that this is a primal response based on something that was taught a long time ago that it seems like we're, we're probably still holding on to. Um, yeah. But tell me about your perspective from that as far as like observing emotion from a detached yeah, yeah, place. Right. 
Well, I think one of the benefits of being a human is that we have language that we can use to describe how we're feeling. And that's the, the greatest insight that we have into other people is the language. We can kind of look at them and perhaps assess maybe what we think might be going on, but actually we have language to describe situations, to describe physical sensations in our body and to kind of, um, it, it, it gives us the ability to step back. And I think one way in which we can do that, um, and then I know, and I know this is starting to be discussed more and probably has been for a long time in therapy and psychology, but now we've kind of got the science to back it up, is that what we would say kind of expanding your emotional vocabulary, using a wider range of language of words to describe emotional experiences does give you the ability to step back um, and gives you more agency, I suppose, over how you're going to respond, um, what a particular feeling is and what it means. We, we can do an awful lot of meaning-making about situations and contexts and sensations within our own mind and we can get so kind of caught up and our own world, and sometimes I think that the world of self-help has encouraged people to spend far too much time looking inward and not enough time stepping back and looking outwards and sharing. Um, and so that's, we've got, we are so lucky as humans to have language to be able to do that. And one of the best ways to step back is to, you know, write, write it down. Don't use your computer, move away from that, write words down. Um, and people may have seen there's these, you can kind of, um, Google emotional granularity or you can Google these kind of wheels of emotion whereby instead of just having kind of happy and sad, you think what are the, you know, what are um, 20 different words that you can use to describe a positive emotion beyond just happy? You could feel calm or content or blissful or you could feel like kind of like gently excited. There could be mild anticipation. There could be joy. There could be hilarity. There could be... Um, you know, just, um, you know, there's, there's lots of words and we can start expanding, you know, our vocabulary by looking at other languages and words that they use to describe particular emotional experiences. And we find when we do that, we start to recognise the nuance of different experiences and we start to be able to be more thoughtful and I suppose mindful, for want of a better word, about those experiences instead of going it's all happy or it's all sad or it's all fearful. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps the emotions, the sensations you're feeling in your body aren't fight or flight or fear. Perhaps it's your body getting you ready to rise to a particular challenge or anticipate. I've got someone at the door here. <laughs> I, I know you're a mum. I totally get it. <laughs> you off, darling? See you, darling. Love you. Ten-year-old's just heading off to school. He's putting his shoes on heading off to I school. I love it. My um, daughter sometimes will st sit out, stand outside the um, studio and she'll she'll listen to me for a little while. So I have to like, I try to pay attention, but I can see her watching and listening. Yeah, it's oh, funny. I could, just, I could just hear him. Um, and it's funny, years ago, I've got um, quite a few Dutch friends um, from growing up in New Zealand and spent some time with them in Europe when I was in my early 20s. And there was they taught me this word. We were kind of all sitting around and we'd been, you know, maybe my dog's at the door. <laughs> Um, kind of, you know, we'd probably had a late night out and we'd had been hanging out all day and it was kind of late. And we were just in that kind of really tired, silly, happy, relaxed kind of mood where we were just giggling and laughing about everything. And, and they were saying, and they kept using this word malik, which was this Dutch word for kind of, they said it's a bit like, they said it's like being flowery, like just being silly and laughing at everything 
um, when you're kind of relaxed and calm and tired. And I thought, oh, God, that's such a, a wonderful word to describe that particular emotional experience in that sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's really fun. There's lots of really great online tools where we can go away and look at different words used in different languages to describe different emotional experiences. And we can then recognize those and go wow hey that's an emotional experience I didn't know I had if we had a reptilian brain where everything these emotions were all hardwired and fear driven and that was it we wouldn't be able to learn to experience new emotions we couldn't rehearse and practice emotional responses to particular situations in advance which we know we can do we can use mental rehearsal rehearsal and visualization to rehearse how we want to respond emotionally in a particular situation Mm -hmm. much the same way an actor does on stage um so all of this understanding that we've got from up-to-date neuroscience research and psychology um we need to be moving on from some of these really old-fashioned ideas that have been held very tightly by therapists because they're not necessarily helping people I love that. I think it's so valuable. And I love what you're doing. I know that you have a boot camp where you actually bring kind of modern day um, research and understanding of of neuroscience in the brain to coaches and therapists in order to help them. And I think that that's so valuable because so many people are, are interested. But like you said, I think that they're reading books from like decades ago. Um, well, that, yeah, there's a bunch of old white American, I call them the white, the gray-haired American gentlemen of the brain. <laughs> Maybe one or two of them in Europe, but, you know, it's time for a change of guard. It's 2020, honestly. I love it. Um, and, and a lot of them haven't trained in, in, in neuroscience research. Yeah. Um, as I said, I, I'm in my 40s. 20 years ago was when the, the neuroscience disciplines were first coming together in universities. Um, I was one of the first cohorts to graduate from my university in New Zealand. Um, with a degree in neuroscience. I'm not a grey-haired, I'm not grey-haired in a few years. <laughs> but I, I think, um, the, and there are some remarkable researchers out there um, doing some great things and, and, you know, we're starting to be able to really apply some of this research from the lab into people's lives. And and the, what we are understanding is just giving us so many more tools. Um, I, so I think it's a really, really exciting time and, and, and thanks for bringing out my trainings. I, I have a boot camp, which is kind of like a two-week version of intensive neuroscience training and then um, the Neuroscience Academy, which teaches the same content spread over 12 weeks. So it's a bit more relaxed, but longer. Um, and, and and I've designed that to give people a basic understanding and in, in, um, in brain anatomy and physiology um, and thinking and feeling and how, you know, motivation and planning and goal setting, we look at neuroplasticity, which is a topic people are very, very interested in, but again, have a great degree of misunderstanding about. Um, We we look at the biology of these ideas and, you know, what does the science tell us? What don't we know yet? What can we do with that? Um, And I have great fun teaching, teaching people that and some of the tools and ideas that people have developed as a result of my trainings, blow my mind. I had a, um, a session last night. I have a woman's brain health training program as well. We had a session last night, um, people presenting. Um, we had a woman from Belgium, someone from Hong Kong who's just moved from New Zealand, a German woman living in Brazil, uh, American woman. One of the British women wasn't presenting and there was me. And so there's people from all over the world 
um, presenting these five-minute talks on these um, ideas that they've developed to go away and use in their, in their particular work. Um, and some of the stuff that these people came up with was extraordinary um, because I've given them enough neuroscience for them to go away and develop really clever, useful ideas that are going to really make a massive difference. I think that's what everyone's hoping for, and uh, like I, especially with what's happening with the pandemic and the way people are starting yeah. to look at online therapy and how can we help with mental health and how can we support people. And the last thing you want to do is send them home and tell them like you know get in touch with your feelings and write lots of yeah. without without you know true support. And I think um, we're going to see a massive shift, I believe, in the self development field. Um, mm. Because yeah, I think I think we 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 kind of have a bit of a tendency to assume we can think our way out of out of things. Um, we can think our way into new ways of thinking, or think our way into new ways of feeling. And um, you know, thinking and feeling are, are sort of you know functions that emerge from the brain doing what it does. But there's a lot of other ways which we can you know the brain receives input and information and behaving and doing um, are often more useful ways of changing thinking and feeling. People, I think, think I can think my way out of this situation or I can think of feeling in a different way. And um, I don't necessarily know whether that's always the smartest or easiest way um, to do to do things. So um, behave, teaching people to behave in different ways, giving them the why, giving them the how, is as useful as sending them away and saying practice mindfulness. Like honestly, <laughs> who's going to do? Who's going to do that right now? Who really wants to spend more time trying not to think about stuff at home in their own mind? Honestly, yeah. I mean, there's benefits for that, but I think there's ways we can do mindfulness. Yeah, um, not just tell people to be mindful um, because what are they? What kind of action? What strategy does that give them to go away and try out? No. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that I, I've realized too, is that I'm like, depending on where you come from, there's so many different tools that have been put into place in different areas of uh, like, whether it's yogis or it's therapists or it's whatever, like there's all versions of mindfulness that actually help. But I think everyone puts their own spin and their own marketing yeah. on it. And so they make yeah. it more complicated than it probably needs to so be. There's franchises out there. <laughs> yeah. And so they've got to kind of put their mark on it. And then people become so overwhelmed. Like, do I have to get this pillow? And do I have the right app? And do I need to burn incense? And am I? Um, and yeah. then, oh, I'm not doing it correctly. And I think one of the things I'm finding is that I'm just fascinated with the fact that what can be taught in in an ashram that's very spiritual can also be taught in a way that's very scientific and logical, and both of them have an effect on your yeah, brain. Absolutely, and, and personally, um, as a, as a scientist and someone who's very you know I'm I'm a New Zealander, we're very very pragmatic and practical and can do attitude people, um, and I and the world of woo whatever you want to call it, just I'm not interested and. Um, I think that there's some really useful ideas that are being taught within particular disciplines and spaces, which are probably very nicely backed up by science. Breathing, for example, we're understanding more about the neuroscience of breath and how that interacts with our stress response system and how we can use that to calm ourselves down without all of the 
fluff associated with that. There's, there's, a, there's an entire population of people out there who have been turned off mm-hmm. from using useful tools because of the, the the kind of the narrative that's been built up around a lot of the mindfulness movement. A lot of people just are not interested yeah. because of how it's packaged. Um, and so I think, you know, if we can if kind of break it down, for many people that's great, they want that. Many other people might just really want a basic useful tool on this is how you can use breathing to calm yourself down and this is why um, without needing a guru or incense or someone talking about your inner light or whatever. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, and so I think that's where I see neuroscience sitting. It can be used to support ancient wisdom, but can also be used to create really practical tools and strategies for people who are a bit more pragmatic. Right. Um, certainly a lot of the people, my kind of world um, is, is, is more in that space. And I don't want people to miss out um, because they've been turned off by some of the messaging. Oh, I love that. I was actually talking to one of our, um, one of my colleagues recently about our, this platform that we have because it's like I, I live in I live in a lot of ways in both worlds. My background was in finance. I'm a very logical, very like, but I also enjoy meditation and it, and I enjoy uh, yoga classes and I enjoy these different things. And I can be very spiritual. And I was like, but I think that there's there are people who are in the middle, like the 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 two. It just depends on where you are, I think, in your life and how you come to it. Um, but I, I love this conversation. I, I would love to, at some point in time, have you on again and talk about possibly neuroplasticity because I am very curious about that. I think it's fascinating. That's um, my, my gig. Neuroplasticity is my thing. <laughs> I love, but I love, I love the perspective that we've talked through today. That um, stop calling ourselves these these like primordial creatures, right? We're not. That's not. We're way more glorious and interesting and fantastic than that. I mean, we did evolve on this planet that revolves, spins on its axis and revolves around the sun. We are part of nature, but, um, you know, we've got some useful tools that other animals don't, language being one, the ability to self-reflect, um, the ability to connect and talk and communicate with others. And that gives us, um, has given us the ability to try and understand ourselves, you know, some neuroscientists don't think our brains are really quite evolved enough to understand our brains, but you're trying to use our own brains to understand our brains and minds. And maybe it's all too hard. We don't know. That's why consciousness is called the hard problem. Um, But, um, you know, I think if we're going to be talking about the brain, listen to the, listen to the neuroscientists, please. (laughs) That, I would like that. My, that would be my um, advice because we've got some really useful stuff to say and um, you might you might be surprised at what you learn. I love that. Well, oh, yeah. I have one last question and I want to I set it up for you so that you understand the perspective. My daughter actually named the platform. Um, I had asked her if I could name it after her. It's um, Liv. And she said, no, I don't want you to name it after me, but what if Liv stood for something? And I said, well, what would it stand for? And she says, well, you believe everyone should love themselves and love each other. 
And why don't we make that go viral? So it's love is viral. The idea that you influence the people in your life. If you're working on yourself and you're trying to be a better, stronger human being, you're a better parent, you're a better community member. So my, my question for you is, what would that mean to you? Like, how are you either doing that in your daily life or how would you suggest or give advice to someone as to how they could live that idea that love is viral? Yeah, I mean, I think um, human life is social life and um, if we're focusing on the reptilian brain, just going back to that, our, most of our behaviours aren't driven by fear, they're driven by love and connection and wanting to, you know, be with other people. And we understand the studies that have been done of children who aren't raised, that, you know, they're fed and watered, raised in orphanages and aren't loved and nurtured and cared for, um, don't grow up their brains don't develop normally. We need we need human connection and love from the moment we're born. You know, little kids, I've got a son who started high school this year and he's finding it so tough because he copes academically and he's got tons of friends outside school, but he hasn't kind of found his friends at school yet and he's finding it so hard. He just wants someone to connect with. We see it with, you know, mums having new babies. You're connecting with this new baby, but... You, you sometimes feel so isolated from the community by virtue of the fact that you're at home with this baby. We've seen this year with, you know, all of the social distancing and isolation and quarantining people have had to go through. How it rips our hearts out. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a very, and I'll cry thinking about this lovely um, mum in my uh, school community here lost her son at the weekend in a car accident. It's devastated oh the community. Um, and... Everyone has cried so many tears for them because we all know, could you imagine anything worse? Um, and, it, you know, and even people in aged care, you know, they're so, what they want is to connect. I, I spent a lot of time working in aged care when I went through university and, you know, so many people were so lonely and all they just wanted was time and space to sit and be. And that's all anyone wants. So it doesn't matter whether you're a baby, whether you're a new mum, you've lost a child, gosh forbid, my poor friend. And, you know, it doesn't matter what point in the lifespan you're at, then love is what drives us, not fear, um, human connection. And that's really, I think, um, one message I would take away. You look back, you reflect on your life, it's not really about what you've done. It's not about self-reflection. It's about the other people that you shared shared your story with. And mm. our brains evolved to do that. We we are part of Mother Nature, but we evolved as, as these human social creatures. And so we need to remember that that's kind of that's that's what should be driving us, and that's what we should be talking about, and that's what we should be promoting. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. I love it's it's kind of changed. Sometimes like when people are talking, I get a visual and I just saw how we have evolved to take care of one another. And we sometimes get divided by agenda or issue or what have you, but it's within us all to connect at some point. I want to thank you so much for taking the time with me today. I know you have kids getting off to school, so <laughs> I know, <laughs> but I just, I want to tell you, I really appreciate you being, um, what you're doing too, because I, I know it's incredibly valuable. So thank you for yeah, being yeah, Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today. I love this episode and Sarah's reminder that love is what drives us, not fear, and that we all want and need human connection and love from the moment we're born. Important stuff. You can find Sarah online at drsarahmckay.com or Instagram at drsarahmckay and on Facebook at Your Brain Health. 
As always, please subscribe, leave a review, and don't forget to share with your friends. We are always interested in content that uplifts, so if you have ideas, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at dearlive at loveisviral.com. You can also find us on Instagram at loveisviral.media or visit our website at loveisviral.com. Apple users, don't forget to give the Live Pocket Coach a try by downloading it for free for seven days.